Hi, everybody. This is Kelly Hart. You guys are on the heart of the matter. If you haven't already yet, please click subscribe and please follow us and share this link. Today we have Dr. Farida Awad live in the house. Everybody, welcome, Dr. Awad. Hello, everybody. How you doing? Hey, Kelly. Hi. We're so happy to have you today. Dr. Awad, tell everybody about yourself, where you come from and where you're at today. Oh, okay. I know that's a loaded question. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I am Egyptian by birth. So I was born and raised in Egypt, and I was there till I was 12 years old. And I came to the States and I am currently, you know, um, the chaplain in the Army National Guard full time in North Carolina. And I'm a clinician and I am an educator. Um, I teach uh, counseling classes. I do a bunch of stuff, you know. Um, I don't know how much of each of those you want to dive into, but there's definitely a whole lot of background that we could unpack if, if you like. Yeah, well, you do a lot. You are a lot. And that's really why I wanted to talk to you today. You're multifaceted. You have so many things that you do really well. Um, in fact, I don't think there are any things you do not do well. Um, can you tell the audience how many degrees you have and what they're in? <laughs> okay, so um, I have completed uh, three seminary degrees. Um, I have a master's in uh, art and religion. In New Testament studies, I have a master's in religious education, and I have a master's in divinity. That's like the big master's that is 94 hours. Um, and then I have a master's in clinical mental health. Uh, I also have a doctorate in ministry in pastoral counseling. So overall, I think that's five graduate degrees. Um, and, you know, God has been good and gracious just for me to have the opportunity to finish all that education and, and employ it in counseling and in ministry. Yeah, it's amazing. Amazing. You're like the smartest guy I know. Oh, no, I could just read and take tests and do papers. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. So a little bit of uh, background about me and you. We met how long ago? How long has it been? It's been what? So it years? was 2019. Yeah. Um, because I was beginning, uh, we did our interview because I was beginning my internship um, at Thrive Counseling at the time. And you were the LCMHC supervisor there. And I was an intern student coming in to start doing clinical uh, for my last, the third year of my master's of clinical mental health um, requirement. So yeah. that's where we started. Man, it seems like a lifetime ago, but then in other ways, it just seems like yesterday, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And we made a connection because we uh, actually worked with your husband uh, in the mm -hmm. past. And because your name, like, it's like, wait a minute, there can't be too many hearts. Um, and I, I remember asking you at the end of the interview, I'm like, hey, do you married to a chief heart? And you're like, yep. I was like, oh, I know. Him. And yeah, it was just, it's a, it was a cool kind of connection there. Yeah, it's awesome, huh? And yeah. then we've kind of gotten to know each other more and, you know, blend our families together. That's and, right. And now we're, we're we're brothers and sisters again. It's awesome. Yeah, amen. God's family yeah. is, is big and, and beautiful. Yeah, and I love that. I absolutely love it. So tell us a little bit about the journey of what it was like to come from Egypt 
to jump into New York City as a young boy, what that what that culture shock was like, and a little bit about your life growing up here in America and what it was like for you. Yeah. So, you know, like I said, um, I grew up in Egypt um, as a, you know, middle class kid. Uh, I have uh, three siblings. We're all boys. So it was a pretty rambunctious house. Lots of like soccer and wrestling and fighting happening all the time. Um, and then we came to the U.S. Um, actually, my, my, my uncle came to the U.S. in 1970s. And he actually put in for my mom, his sister, to come to the, to, to the U.S. And 10 years later, um, in 1990, um, we got a call and we came to the U.S. with a green card. Uh, none of us spoke the language. We didn't know the culture. Um, we came to Brooklyn, New York, and really just kind of like had to start all over again and begin from a place of like really that immigrant poverty. Um, four boys at the age of like my twin brother and I were 12. My oldest brother was 14 and my younger was 10. We were, like, we we're all two years apart. And we grew up in a one bedroom apartment in Brooklyn, New York. I mean, you know, we, we grew up poor, but we didn't know any better. We were just so delighted to be in America, but um, we were chasing the American dream. And, um, you know, four boys doing life together, but there was a cultural shock for sure, right? There's obviously a language barrier that takes place when you have to learn a new language. But even like in the last, I think, two years, I've realized, um, I think the trauma that happens when you immigrate as a kid, because everything that you know, um, we have a huge family in Egypt. My mom has 11 brothers and sisters, and my dad has 12. So there's a huge uncles and, and aunts and cousins. And to go from that to nobody and nothing, that you, know, you don't know anyone, you can't even communicate with anyone. There is that sense of loss that takes place, but you can't even verbalize it. Um, and I even thought about the idea that even in the midst of that loss as a 12-year-old kid, you're not allowed to even say anything about it or express it because you have nothing to complain about. You know, you just won a golden ticket to come to the U.S. So there's that tension of like knowing the loss, at least in your heart and mind, but the lack of verbiage and even the permission to talk about it. So yeah. it was definitely, um, I didn't know how traumatic it was till, till later, but we were just at the time, I guess, so elated to be in the U.S. and, and experience a culture and and the people group and i mean mm -hmm. egypt is definitely one ethnic group right and then you come to brooklyn new york which is the melting pot of the u.s at the time this is like brooklyn back in the 90s not the gentrified brooklyn today where they have microbreweries on the corner uh this was <laughs> brooklyn that was rough and tough back in the 90s um right. and to be thrown into like just different cultures and languages and and different um, environment. I mean, definitely was a shock to the system for sure. Yeah. Wow. How amazing. So, so tell us what happens. Where do you, what do you decide to do? Do you immediately decide to go to college after you graduate high school? What's your path like? So, I mean, in Egypt, um, education is not something you contemplate or think about. It's like, I, I equated to the idea of asking an eighth grader, oh, are you going to high school, right? I mean, in the U.S., you don't ask an eighth grader or they're going to high school. They just go to high school. That's what they do next. Right. 
Uh, and in Egypt, it's kind of similarly the same way. Like when you finish high school, you go to college. That's what you do. So, you know, I was, um, I wrestled in high school and college, um, had a good wrestling career. And then my twin brother and I enjoyed doing that together. Um, and then I just, you know, going to college was what we're going to do. So I went to college to wrestle. Um, and during that time, I just, you know, my, my life got turned around. I had what some would describe if you come from a Christian faith and background, I had a, like a Damascus road experience where I met Christ and my whole goals and objectives and, and desires just really changed. Um, and I felt a call to ministry soon after. Um, so I left the college I was attending at the time, Hunter College, which was in the city uh, in Manhattan, Brooklyn, uh, in New York City. Um, I left that and went to a Bible college, small Bible college in Rhode Island, um, I think, which, you know, is actually large for a Bible college. Um, but that was also a culture shock, right? To go from like living in a secular school in the dorms uh, where I was not saved, you know, I wasn't walking with Christ at the time to get mm -hmm. saved. And then six, six months later, I am in a Pentecostal holiness uh, Bible oh. college. Yeah, you, you that, that's a whole different. Oh, that's a whole other ball. Great. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, men dorm, women dorms, you have to stay six inches away from the opposite sex, chapel exactly. every day. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's just, again, like, just another, yeah. yeah, another culture shock. Um, so that's where I, I ended up there in 1999 um, when I was in college, the Bible college there. So, um, yeah. yeah. So, and then what led to going into the military? Oh, uh, so um, I find uh, my my wife uh, my first semester in Bible college. So oh. we, we I know it was quick. We started dating um, in March of '99, and we were married in you know Y2K, one one two thousand. They were telling us that the world's going to end. And Jesus was coming back, and I didn't want to go to heaven without a bride. So uh, you, <laughs> you convinced her. <laughs> Lucky her. I'm glad you convinced her. Yeah, yeah. We got married. She was 19. I was 21. We didn't know a thing. Um, but, you know, we really wanted to finish college, which we did. So in 2002, I finished uh, my Bible college. And at the time, I was working in a group home. I was a supervisor. I was almost as young as the kids. It was crazy. Um, but I loved that that work. I loved that there, there was ministry happening. We do a Bible study, and, and the kids would voluntarily come to that and just watching their lives change. Um, and then in 2002, I graduate. And, you know, I'm really just kind of like asking God and, 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 and contemplating and thinking about, well, what do I do now? Like, do I go to ministry full time? If so, what does it look like? Um, and without getting to all the details, I literally felt a sense to go into the military as a chaplain. Um, I felt like that was my calling, but I knew nothing about the military. I mean, like I said, I grew up in Egypt and then in Brooklyn, New York, was raised. And in those two environments, you don't really get exposed to military like personnel or life, really. Um, so I knew nothing about the military and I didn't know there was different branches. I couldn't tell you the difference between an officer from enlisted. I, I had no idea. Um, 
So I call a recruiter and I'm like, hey, I want to be a chaplain. And they're like, well, you have to have a master's in divinity and you have to have three years of ministry experience and you have to be ordained. And I'm like, man, I just graduated Bible college with my bachelor's. Um, and my wife and I really just talked and prayed about what to do. Um, and I decided, well, I know nothing about the military. Why do I go in enlisted and just get to know what that life is like? So that way, when I do become a chaplain, I have context um, and background about what that means. So 2002, I enlisted um, and I came into the Air Force. Uh, and basically, my wife said to me, you're not going to the Marine Corps and you're not going to the Army. So it's the Navy or the Air Force. And I don't like water because I can't swim that well. So Air Force it was. <laughs> and that's where I that's that and that was literally like I think at the time I was 22. Um so I enlisted, came in, came on active duty in the Air Force, um, and and did that for four years, got deployed twice. At the time, um, you know, there was not a whole lot of Arabic speaking uh, airmen in the military. Mm -hmm. So I got to serve as an interpreter a lot and, and did a couple of really cool stuff. Um, and then, but again, I was doing all that in pursuit of the chaplain calling. So um, went to the chaplain candidate program, which was a great opportunity um, to go to seminary and begin working on my degrees. And then 2008 is when I became an active duty chaplain um, and I got stationed at Fort Bragg, which is now Fort Liberty. Yeah, well, I won't go into that little teaser that you threw out there with the name change. I'm going to restrain so we can stay on. You top. like that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like how you tried to like pull me into something, but I'm going to. I did. Out. It was a bait. You did. I, you did. I won't get off topic. So we <laughs> we'll save that for the next podcast to get All me right. Yeah. So you you get out. You go back to school. You join the army. Um, and so, what drew you to the profession of counseling? So, you know, as a chaplain, um, I found I found that we do a lot of counseling. I mean, like significantly a lot of counseling. A lot. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you know, when you think of a pastor role in the church, but in the chaplaincy, you're doing, I would say, 80 to 90 percent of what you do is having people come and, and talk to you. And the reason being is um, in the army, the chaplain has... Um, like privileged communication, and it's it's a hundred percent confidentiality. And I, I know that some of your listeners may be not familiar with that what that means because every time I I would share that with clinicians who are civilians, like oh yeah, you know confidentiality. You know you would have to report if you know there's a um, uh, immediate like suicide risk or danger to self or others, or if there's a child abuse, you have to report those things. And it's like, no, you don't, you don't understand. Like, it's 100%. Um, so the chief of chaplain has decided, I think, wisely back in 1990 that chaplains, well, soldiers needed a safe place to go and have conversations without having to worry about what the repercussions are. And the chaplains became that space for them, that sacred space. So soldiers will come to see you to talk to you about all kinds of issues, even if they're not religious, because they know that you're a safe person for them. They know that they could go talk to you and not have to worry about you reporting anything because you're under this privileged communication uh, army reg that you can't say anything to anyone, no matter what they say. Like, literally, it doesn't, 
there's no duty to warn. There's no mandatory reporting. I mean, um, mm-hmm. that's. I think that's a very privileged place to to provide someone and to hold that space for them. So I just found myself doing a lot of counseling. And interestingly, you know, you talk about all the education I've had to this point. Um, I I didn't have a whole lot of counseling classes. I mean, uh, like I said, a master's of divinity is ninety credit hours, but you only have like one, maybe two classes in counseling. So you feel very ill-equipped. So that's why I went on to do my doctorate in ministry in pastoral counseling. And I, and I love that. I, I finished that in 2011. But going back to school in 2019 to get a clinical degree was, again, predicated on the same idea that I just felt ill-equipped. Uh, I had the pastoral theological side of it, but I didn't know the clinical that well. So I felt like I need to like bolster that skill set. So all my education has been nothing but just an opportunity for me to gain some skill sets to, to help people. Um, and I just see a great, a great need in counseling. I mean, you really get to interact and engage people um, in a very deep and personal level that even in, in the church, you don't, get to, you don't get to experience that, right? I mean, people put on their Sunday best. Um, and in ther- therapy, you get to see people's worst. And, and I want to deal with their worst, not, not their facades on Sunday. So uh, I'm definitely drawn to that idea. Yeah, I love that part too, where you get to be real with somebody and help connect and commit and change some of the things that they want to fix about themselves. Um, I often think about it as, you know, you're laying in bed as a, as a little kid and something falls in the closet and you're too scared to look uh-huh. at that monster yeah. in yeah. the monster in there. Yeah. I want to be with them. I want to be the one that gets the monster. Right. Right. Like, yeah. I love that. I help them lean into the dark. Yeah. That's yeah. what I want to be. I want to be that person for them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, so what do you think are some of the biggest challenges that we face in our career field with counseling today? <laughs> I mean, I got a list. I, I don't know how public you want to go on your list, but. You know, you well, I mean, things. yeah, there's definitely a list. I agree with you. Um, <clears throat> maybe I'll share what I think is unique to my experience, right? Because yeah. um, I'm sure that we could agree on the general issues, right? But maybe some mm-hmm. of the things that I've noticed, as especially, I mean, you know, I graduated the degree in 2020, um, and I finished my license management family therapy, uh, unrestricted license last year in April, and I just finished my LCNMHC literally June 2nd, right? So I'm kind of like freshly coming out of the process. And one of the things I've noticed that is really a challenge in the profession is the, the, the requirements that are put in place in front of people to get to that place where they can be the therapist and can be the helper. I mean, you need to have a master's. And again, I'm not saying we shouldn't have these things, right? But I am saying we should consider the equity of those things and the, and the, and the necessity of them and, and just reason with, you know, are they necessary? And if they are, then are they fair? Can we, how can we make them equitable to others? All that, right? So if we're thinking about like what is what does it take to be a therapist? And oh, by the way, you have to just, just profession is so overwhelmed 
with demands and needs right now that you just cannot fulfill. I mean, we have waiting lists, we have people who need help that cannot get it because it's just a, there's just not a plethora of therapists, right? Um, so you have to have a master's, like we said, right? We all know that. But in that master's, you have to have a year of three semesters of internship um, and clinical work, which is the equivalent of 20 to 25 hours a week that you're working for free, right? So you, you have to have a certain kind of a, I don't want to say privilege, but some kind of somebody's got to be supporting you. You, you. you can't be paying for your education and working 20 to 25 hours a week for free, but that's what you have to do. And then you graduate, then you have to wait for your degree to be confirmed. Then you have to take the state exam. Then you got to wait for the state exam to come out. And oh, by the way, none of that is free, right? You got to pay $250 for your application. You got to pay to do. I mean, it's just, there's a lot of money that is required of the individual to get into the, the, the profession. And I'm just wondering, like, why do we make these hurdles or put these hurdles in place? I understand the educational requirement. I understand the experience requirement. But there are, I think there are some things, like, for example, like, why do you, why can't you take a state exam before your degree is conferred? Like, there's just, like, some silly things that we put in place that don't necessarily make sense. So if you do everything right and you pass your exam on the first time, you're looking at six to nine months after you graduated of being unemployed. So that's that's an issue. Like, again, when we're thinking about the equity and equality and and trying to produce the best therapists uh, and invite others to join this profession who are capable and willing to do it, but then we put these unnecessary unnecessary hurdles. I just got to wonder, do we have places and, 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 and areas where we could make that process a little better um, to invite people to, to the profession? Um, and again, with the need that's out there, I think somebody's got to be thinking about this stuff. And again, like, you know, I don't know what the magic thing that happens when you have 3,500 hours of clinical experience uh, for the LCMHC that doesn't happen, I don't know, at 2,000. And I'm not saying we should be at 2,000. Um, but, but again, it's just the requirements that we need to ask about. What is that about? And, and how do we help people get into the profession and be high-quality folks without putting unnecessary hurdles? So I think that's definitely an issue that I think is unique to my experience. There's probably others, but I I don't know if you want to talk about that anymore or what do you think about that? Well, I explored that a little bit with uh, another guest that I had on because mm. I wanted uh, our audience to understand that this that this is a struggle. You know, we look at mental health today and how people are fighting these battles with depression, anxiety eating disorders, body dysmorphia, you know, we can say that the issue of being transgender is okay now, but now we're seeing fallout from people who have now wanted to detransition, who are the individuals who are now helping those folks. Mm. There aren't a lot of people who can help them. Why? Well, now we have to look to the left of the problem. Like where are the therapists at? And I would say they're not there because we've put a lot of measures in place to kind of keep therapists out. Like you said, and I explained right. in that episode that there are a lot of burdens 
you know, you have to spend the money on the graduate degree. You have to spend the money on the testing and training. Then once you finally make it through the process of spending anywhere from, depending on where you go to school and how you get the degree, 60 to $300,000 for the degree. Right. On average. And then once you get through, then you start the, the internship and practicum part. If you're lucky enough to get into a program uh, with a site, they may charge you or they may not charge you. It depends right. on right. what that fee is. And then once you get done, if you find somebody who will pay you during the process of you accruing your hours, if that's a lot of money, you know, and then right. you have to pay for the hourly supervision. Correct. That's yeah. a lot of money. Right. 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 So, and then the money towards the boards. And I understand you have to pay those fees because they have people they have to pay that operate on those boards. Right. right. I understand overhead. I've run many businesses. I yeah. get it. Right. I truly do. However, I also understand that if you over-regulate something, you are decreasing the quality and you're decreasing the quantity of the talented individuals that are needed to meet the need to the left of the problem. Yeah, that's, that's well said. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so I do think that there are ways that we could start looking at strategizing and implementing other things to assist people. If it could be, you know, different ways to provide supervision. If it could be, um, you know, that's one way I look at it. You know, for for example, one of the things that I did with folks that I supervised, you know, I provided the supervision free when they worked yeah. for me. Oh, no, I was I was a beneficiary of one of those blessings. So absolutely, that makes a huge difference. Yeah, because again, it was a burden. It was a burden that was unnecessary. And so that right. was part of what I wrapped into. If you worked for me, that's what I provided. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I definitely see that, that that's an issue. But there's another issue that I think may be worth highlighting. And we don't have to dive in any, you know, a lot. But I, I also see that there's an issue systemically between, like, the need that arises and the time that it takes to actually see the clinician, Right. Again, if we're talking about how do we systematically address the intrinsic issues to the system so that we could close that gap between when the client calls the, the therapist or the office or whatever to set up the appointment um, and when they actually get seen. And again, that, this problem is obviously like all interconnected because, well, there's not a whole lot of therapists that they could see. So now they're waiting, you know, three, four, five months. And you and I know, and I'm sure your listeners understand that by the time you pick up the phone to call to set up an appointment, there's a lot of stuff that has been taking place to get you to that point, right? Um, I mean, it's like I equated to go into the emergency room. You know, you don't, you didn't, you know, something got you there and you want to be seen now, right? There's a journey there, right? It's that marriage just really struggling. It's been struggling for a year, two, ten. And now you're like, all right, we need to go talk to somebody or it's that depression or that, that post-traumatic stress disorder or the combat trauma that now you're finally going to call. And then what you get on the receiving end is like, well, 
you're going to have to wait three to four months. Um, and some people just, that's not fair to keep people waiting that long when they're actually reaching out and asking for help. And I see that issue like predominantly in the military. You know, I, I, I feel for our soldiers and veterans who have, you know, some of them have paid the ultimate price and for some of them, they bear the, the wounds and the trauma of war in their bodies and in their hearts and souls and in their mental health. And then when they reach out for help, what they get from whoever, whether it's the, the civilian clinic, that's private practice or the Veterans Affairs, the VA, um, they're waiting six, seven, eight months, and it's just it's a dishonor to their service. And I think that we definitely need to lean in and do something about that. Yeah, we definitely need to do better. Well, you and I both know that the places that I have worked, I have worked very hard on eliminating that barrier to care. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that you have to look organizationally at structures. I think systemically, if we look at policy, it would have to be countywide, statewide, right, to be able to fix those kinds of problems. But I do think if we start a conversation around it, which mm. is what I hope to do by doing things like this, we keep people thinking about right. if you look inwardly at your organization, maybe you can start thinking about how you can look at your own practices, your own procedures, and start thinking about how do I make this service more readily available if it's, right. I have an acute crisis policy so that we can fast track somebody. And then if we see them and we can do a warm handoff to somebody else. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I, what we're, we're, yeah. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, because I think that's ultimately, ultimately what I see. A lot of times we don't want to, because in an ER room, you know, the person comes in with their acute problem and the physician sees them, treats it for that problem, and then sends them out. Like, here's who, here's who's going to follow up with you, right? Right. So right. we as clinicians don't have that mindset in mental health. We're like, mm. we get you, we see you, then we're going to see you through to the end. We don't yeah. have that mentality that we're just going to see you for this acute problem, put the Band-Aid on it, and refer you out. So yeah. that's my medical model we follow. But I do think if we could have some type of, like, acute clinic model where we're like oh you've got this acute issue come in we put the band-aid on it even if it's like for a couple weeks right and then we send you like we manage you to the person can see you right yeah yeah i mean but we, yeah i don't think we even have that structure i don't know of any clinic that that offers that, that honestly that that would be a beautiful system like where right. you have a ER, so to speak, for mental health, where someone is in crisis and they could reach out and then they could just, you know, coping mechanisms or just get them to, to emotionally stabilize them and then refer them. I think that that would mirror the medical model that exists in the medical community. Well, and I'll tell you why it won't work right now, because insurance companies don't agree with that. Okay. <laughs> so this is yeah. why it hasn't happened, and this is why it doesn't work right now, because insurance companies who are the driver of this it problem right. will say you have to have a referral from, for, from a PCM. That's also part of the push for why it takes a little bit of time, right? Yeah. So for a physician in an ER, you automatically, most of the time, I will say 90% of the time, you have the code 
that you put on that gives you the approval for treatment in the emergency system, right? Right. Yeah. It gets paid nine times out of 10. I, I've right. not seen too many emergency bills get denied. Yeah. Because yeah. you've got the qualifier for the treatment. But we don't have that in emergency mental health. Right. Right. right? So that's, that's another barrier of care. However, I think if people like me and you and others sat down together with a think tank, we could solve that problem pretty quickly. So there's a couple barriers here I see. One, changing some clinicians' minds so they could understand that this is like a triage type system. We're going to see them for a short-term interim. We don't have to have them for six to nine months or 12 to 18 months. We're not doing this long-term. It's a triage. Two, yeah. we get the client to also understand it. Three, we get insurance companies on board where they can see the how we're working it. And it's not necessarily the PCM model of referral, right? Yeah. Yeah, we could do a lot of great work that way. Yeah, and I honestly wonder who is or where is that think tank happening and is it happening? And if it is, then how does it solicit, you know, the voice of, the clinicians because i think one of the i mean we see this in the military all the time right you have like generals and the you know like the congress is making decisions without the input of the soldier on the ground right and, th and that's foolish to do that you need to talk to the folks who are on the ground and what they're experiencing so that informs the decisions and the planning and the resourcing that you do at the, the highest level so i just wonder like where is that happening i haven't seen it and i'm not saying it's not happening i just uh, having seen that platform being being because no, it's back to the medical model. They're looking at the symptom. Oh, we're having suicide. So we're looking at the symptom rather than going far over here and going, okay, really what the problem is, people are having acute crisis and they're waiting too long and then they kill themselves, right? Right, right. We're not going back to like the simple solution of we just need to be able to treat people in the easiest ways possible it could be very simple intervention right, right? yeah until we stabilize them yeah so no yeah. nobody's being smart enough to think about and then back to what you originally said how do we get more clinicians in the field well that would be easy if we just restricted some of the things that are burdensome and cumbersome right yeah so no it's it's being solved with a lot of bureaucracy rather than hey, we've got real thought leaders who have actually had boots on the ground who have investment in the process. Right, right. So if yeah. anybody listens to this, who's on those committees, please call us because, man, we got thoughts. Yeah, and I mean, it, not just us, but like just develop a system by which you could solicit some information that may paint a different picture, right, that you're not seeing. Uh, and I think that's the disconnect that happens between those who make policies Right, like we're gonna make you know thirty five hundred hours, or you need to pay two hundred fifty dollars to, to for your application, or whatever decisions that get made, without asking what's the impact of those decisions, and are we asking those who are impacted by the decision to give us their feedback and experiences, so that could help us shape the decisions that we make. And, and I think that's honestly where I, I don't think this is like a malicious thing. I don't think anybody's you know oh, sitting up there like oh you know we're gonna. <laughs> going to get people out of here or, or try to block um, potential clinicians. I just think that it's dec decisions that get made 
um, that are disconnected from information. And then you yeah. just make uninformed decisions and plans. Yeah. And I do think that, you know, it is up to people like me and you to help inform the boards or help grassroots efforts maybe kind of like move things in a certain way, right? And we can, we can, we can on our own do these kinds of things. And this is one of the reasons I wanted to start this because I think it takes this to maybe start pushing certain things down the road. Yeah, no, I love the grassroots idea. I mean, that's one of the things I really appreciated uh, on where we work together and some of the stuff that we're doing is that we offered, you know, free counseling pro bono for folks who couldn't afford it. Because that is another hindrance, obviously, right, to, to accessing help. Like when you're asking people to pay out of pocket, even like those who have insurance, the copay could become an issue. You know, I mean, this is not, you're not going to your doctor once every six months. You're talking about mental health visits that are happening weekly. And for mm -hmm. that single mom or that, you know, that person who's a devil, you know, two uh, working household parents who are just barely trying to make ends meet. And then we're saying, well, you got to pay $20, $30 each week per visit. That, that could be a lot. That could be the difference between people having the electricity or not. So I think that we need to think through how do we do that. And I love the fact that I, I'll be honest with you, I would propose a, a, a almost, I don't know if you could make this into law, but like every clinician, you're going to give back. Like for every 10 clients you see for pay, you're going to see one client pro bono to just be an advocate for those who have the least and need help the most. Um, and I think that we, again, these are the, some of the things, the barriers that we could remove between the help that is needed and the client and then the therapist who's available to do it. So, I mean, there's definitely a lot of, a lot of conversations that should be having and, and hopefully had right now about that topic and, and that process. Yeah, I completely agree. And um, that's also one of my core belief systems too. I mean, I always try to make sure that if there's anybody who's underserved, I serve them first. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, they are the least of those, right? That we're called to, to serve. To serve. Yeah. yeah. So as we kind of talk about mental health, I, I really want to know what you consider mental wellness. That's one thing I like to ask everyone because it's mm. a little different for everyone. Yeah. But what do you think being mentally well should look like or should feel like? What does it embody for you? So, I mean, that's a great question. Um, I think one of the things I've noticed as a chaplain, um, and, and it'll relate, I promise, it's a little bit of a detour, but it's not. One of the things I notice as a chaplain is we always, I, I call it like when people ask what you do as a chaplain, I say, you know, we are the um, trauma firefighters. You know, we show up when the building is on fire to put the building out, right? The trauma took place, the suicide attempt has happened or it's been completed. The domestic violence has happened or been, you know, uh, on its way to happen, the, the DUI. I mean, we're always showing up after the event has taken place and we're just trying to put the fire out. And I think mental health and resiliency is about the like bolstering the person's inner ability to withstand the suffering of life. I mean, life is suffering and people are going to experience all kind of trauma in life. 
So how do we prepare people to confront that and not just survive their trauma, but thrive in the midst of it, right? And, and that's a very difficult task and, and calling for the human spirit to withstand the, the trauma of life and the suffering of life and to survive it and to thrive in the midst of it. So I think mental health for me is like, it's just that ability, right? To, to, to bounce back from traumatic experiences and suffering. It's to withstand bad days and negative emotions and to manage them and to learn how to metabolize those things in a way that's healthy, that's not cognitively, emotionally, or spiritually damaging. I mean, it's such a, 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 a I mean, it's, that's a huge question. But if I could reduce it to one answer is that how do we help people uh, be resilient in a very, and I know it's an overused term, but the really genuinely resilient so they're not breaking under the pressure of life that we know is coming. I mean, the pressure in life, you don't, you, you don't get to choose whether uh, life and suffering and disease and death is going to happen. Those things are going to happen. It's just a matter of like, how do you respond to those things? And are you resilient and unbreakable? When, when they occur. So yeah. I think that's a decent definition of, of mental health and well-being um, yeah. rather than always showing up to, to fix the problem with preempt problems. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, I, I contemplate it myself and, and that's one of the reasons I want to kind of start. I really wanted to start the podcast was I think people have this concept of what being physically well looks like. You know, we talk about the numbers. Oh, you know what your cholesterol numbers should be. You know what your heart rate should be. You know what your BMI should be. You know what your blood pressure should be, right? We know what a healthy weight looks like. At least we used to. Because uh, now it's okay to be whatever weight you want to be. Uh, but nobody really could give what your mental weight should look mm. like. Nobody could say what your mental acuity should look like no, nobody really when i started looking it up had a frame of reference for what mental wellness really looked like and yeah. so i wanted to explore that with everyone because for me mental wellness does look like being resilient and resilient looks like being able to endure hardship without collapsing underneath of it and and showing up even when things are hard and tolerating it mm. and still yeah. being able to love right yeah right yeah 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 and I, and I i love that i mean you know to be able to to not disconnect and withdraw and 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 self-medicate and to still to, to remain vulnerable and willing to engage in life um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's a, I think that's a calling of being human, right? I mean, that's, that's what we do. And to help people do that and do it well. Um, I think that's, that's like the calling of the therapist. Yeah, I think so too. And, and that's one reason I love what I do is that uh, I don't always do it perfectly. And sometimes it's kind of sloppy because I'm very direct and like, hey, stop that, you know, but I I do love genuinely being with others and uh, I, you know, maybe it's the pain I've endured and suffered, but I'm like, it's okay. You know, I've been there. Let's walk through it together. So yeah. you get to the point that 
you know, you know, the fireman image, I think is a great one because it's like, I'll work, I'll walk into that burning building where you're at and it's going to be a hard walk out and we're both going to be burnt when we get out of this, but it'll be okay because we'll recover together. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I think that's the missing piece is that, Hey, the building has been, was on fire. We poured it out, but like the rebuilding of it, right. It's the restructuring and the, the, the reorganization and, and getting that building to be, in, you know, habitable again. I think that's, that's the, that, that mental health piece of it rather than the mental illness, which is the burning fire all the time. Right. So yeah. if we, if we move away from a mental illness model to a mental health model it's that it's that the building of the building and making it resilient and and if a small fire happens right and a little kitchen fire happens there's systems in place that could put it out and it doesn't necessarily mean just because something small went wrong let's just burn the whole building down uh was you know i mean you've seen that happen metaphorically speaking in people's lives right they just any small mishap in life just becomes an all-consuming experience so even putting those systems in place and the fire alarms and the fire sprinklers and i mean all those things that could really just um reinforce the structure of the individual i think all of that is a part of mental well-being and mental health i agree and i think you know letting everybody know out there that we therapists are that way we will lean in we will cover you we will take the heat that's our job, right? And it's a hard job and we, we get burnout from it and we get the compassion fatigue, yep. um, but we're okay with that because that's the job we signed up for because right. we want to make sure that we pull you out of that burning building. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you, you're opening up a whole can of worm and I know we're gonna have to, maybe we'll do this on different podcasts, definitely burnout. And, and I think like one of the things that I've seen a lot as you know, I'm now I'm the guy who's mentoring like chaplains and, and, and therapists is that we need to make sure that we're well, like you, the, the individual well-being and, and maintaining self um, is like, absolutely. I mean, you will be consumed by the, the, the suffering and the, and, the, and the issues of other people if you're not yourself are stable. And I think sometimes, you know, those of us who are attracted to this field and this profession they, they, we want to help and oftentimes we are the last people to help ourselves so to, to just that resiliency even for the therapist and what does that mean to sustain them for the long haul i mean i think that could be a great conversation in the future don't worry we're gonna we're gonna have that conversation one day because you're right it it is something to be talked about because uh it is risky and and, it, and you can get singed so before we go, I want you to kind of tell us what are your aspirations? Where do you think you're going to be in the next five to 10 years? What, what do you hope for? Because <laughs> man, I think the world doesn't even know what's in store for itself. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, you know, my journey has been one of uh, just obedience to God and what he calls me to do. And that has taken me to places I would have never thought or imagined. I mean, if I could share a Bible passage that has been kind of the the banner for my life is, you know, uh, in Corinthians, it talks about this idea that the eyes have not seen and the ears have not heard, nor has it entered into the mind of the person, the things that God has for them, right? Those who are called according to God. So, I mean, I, I grew up a little Egyptian 
kid uh, in the Middle East, uh, grown up as a Christian in a persecuted country, and here I am sitting as the interim state chaplain for a North Carolina National Guard and a therapist, uh, family life chaplain, and, and just helping people. So I just want to make a difference wherever I go. Um, and I, I want to make a difference with the individual, but I also want to make a cultural difference. I want to change the system. I want whatever change that God allows me to make, I want to outlive my tenure there and to outlive my life there. So long after I'm gone, we could just if we could just change the trajectory of whatever area of responsibility and, and, and domain that we're in, just a slight degree, I think in in 20 years from now, that organization, that, that culture would be in a totally different place, right? And that could work in the positive and the negative. So if I could just change the Titanic just a little bit, one degree in the right direction, so we're not hitting that iceberg and, and, and sinking, man, that would be lovely to just to, to leave that, that imprint on the world and, and impact it that way. Um, I would just die a happy man. Well, yeah. it has been a pleasure having you on today. Like I said, it won't be the last time. We have lots of things we're going to talk about, but I just wanted the audience to meet you today and get to know you. And um, I just wanted to say I appreciate you. I, I love that you've become my brother and just part of my family. And I, I appreciate that God brought you into my life. And it's been an amazing, amazing friendship. And I'm so thankful for you. No, absolutely. Thank you for having me here. And it's honestly been my pleasure, Kelly, like just to have a person in my life who is a mentor and a, and a sister who I could just go to and be like, hey, this is what I'm dealing with. How do I handle these things? It's invaluable, um, especially as I began this journey and continue to this journey. So I just appreciate you and, and your family so much. And you've become a part of our family, too. So um, I, I love and value those relationships. And thank you for inviting me today. And I hope this has been helpful, um, and I hope to continue this conversation in the future. Well, great. Well, thanks again. And everybody, please subscribe, please share this video, and thanks again for being with us today on The Heart of the Matter. Bye. All right. Bye. All right. Thanks for reading. You have a good rest of your day, okay? Thank you, Kelly. Mwah. See you later. Bye. Bye.